Welcome back to another episode of Digital Business Models Podcast by 4Week MBA. In this episode, I interview Pari Sivaleri, who is the author of Becoming Trader Joe, How I Did Business My Way and Still Beat the Big Guys. I'm very glad Pari took the chance to have this conversation with us and also that she made sure that this book could come to life because this is the memoir of Joe Columb, who was the founder of Trader Joe, one of the most valuable retail brands that we have in the US. The story of Trader Joe and the uh, memoir of Joe Columb, it's uh, so interesting. The stories and lessons inside are timeless and he did many things that were counterintuitive for the standards of the 50s and the 60s, but yet he was a visionary. And many of the things that you're gonna find in the book are actually counterintuitive also for today's business world. Indeed, Joe Columb built one of the most valuable brands in the US, which eventually would become part of the Aldi family uh, business. So let's get to the conversation and let's see the whole story together. Pari, thanks for joining this conversation today. Uh, I'm very glad you managed to join because uh, you actually uh, helped uh, to bring to life an incredible book, which is the story of Trader Joe's. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Gennaro, for having me. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. It was, uh, it's, uh, it's all my pleasure. And uh, uh, can we get a little bit uh, uh, into the story and the context of how you got uh, you know, into this book and uh, the initial years of uh, Trader Joe's as a company? Yes, I got involved uh, in the stories socially. Um, and uh, Joe had written a journal about the founding of, of Trader Joe's. And he held on to it and kind of made changes over the years. And one day he found it in a box and didn't know what to do with it. So he gave it to his first employee, Mr. Leroy Watson, who uh, is a very close friend of my husband. And, uh, and because we've been friends with Mr. Watson for many, many years, um, I have met Joe socially, uh, gosh, many times over, over the last couple decades. Um, so when Joe asked Leroy to do something with this book, uh, Leroy came to me and he said, Patty, you have published many books. Um, why don't you, uh, uh, you know, can you help us do something with this book? Well, um, and I had written many books about Italy uh, for travelers being a historian and Italy has the coolest history in the world. <laughs> um, I, uh, I took a look at the manuscript and I fell in love with Joe's story. What a great story. Um, so I looked at it, it was very raw. Um, it needed a lot of work. So I spent many months um, bringing the manuscript, uh, cleaning it up and making it work and rearranging everything. And I gave it to, I sat down with my agent and said, Paul, can we sell this manuscript? And he managed uh, to find, uh, uh, we got several bids for the manuscript, but the winning bid was from Harper Collins, one of the uh, largest American publishers in the world. Um, and that's how we got the story published. And as soon as we signed the contract with HarperCollins, the following week, Joe passed away, um, which was a very sad event and left me wondering how on earth I was going to promote this book without Joe, um, because he is clearly the center pin of, of all of this. Um, so, uh, but I realized that that since Joe's passing, it's much more important now to get his story out um, and get his history out so that his story is not lost to history um, and doesn't get lost. So the book was published uh, late last summer um, and it's gone global. It's done, it's just, we're, we're so extremely happy with it. And it looks like a book that's going to be around for a long time. So we're quite happy. Yeah, uh, as I was telling you, I'm very glad that the book came to life because it's uh, it's an evergreen. The the story it's uh, very compelling. It's uh, contemporary. The way it is written, it's uh, very practical for a digital entrepreneur as well. Uh, the, you know, looking at uh, 
the story behind how you create such a valuable brand is uh, it's uh, incredible. So thanks for putting this together. Uh, how were the first uh, and the early years? Uh, you know, before we get to Trader Joe's, because the the story, uh, you know, before uh, Trader Joe's would would come to life. There is an evolution to that. So what's the story behind, especially the story of the, the man who founded the company? Um, Joe was born in Southern California on an avocado farm. Um, avocados grow very well here in Southern California. Uh, but Joe uh, went to Stanford University and got an MBA at Stanford. Uh, and right out of school, Joe got his first job with Rexall Drugs, which was a large uh, pharmaceutical uh, retail uh, company here in the United States at the time. Mm -hmm. And Joe was very bright and had quite a compelling personality. And he got the attention of the executives at Rexall very early when he was working there. And they sort of adopted Joe and took him under their wing and, and groomed him for you know executive management, which is incredible because you learn a lot more you know, in, in real life than you could ever learn in school in a classroom. Um, and every entrepreneur knows that. Mm -hmm. um, when Joe, uh, Joe was called into uh, the executive offices one day and they said, listen, Joe, we have funding for six stores and we don't know what to do with these six stores. So you, we want to send you around the United States to go find a model that, that doesn't exist here in California, but that could work here in California. So Joe set off for a couple of months on a road trip and he visited many different types of retail stores. Uh, when he finally got to Texas, he found a, uh, a chain of variety stores that were all over Texas and doing very well. Now, the, uh, for those that don't know, the American definition for a variety store is sort of sort of a, a small footprint store uh, that has that you can just run in real quick and run back out that you could buy anything from from paper towels and toilet paper to cereal to olives to beer um, you know dog food everything all in one small store they're convenience stores basically and California didn't have that kind of convenience variety store. So he brought that idea back to Rexall and Rexall said, okay, Joe, uh, we can open six stores. We're gonna give you 49%. Uh, we're going to retain 51% and you run, you open and run and manage and grow those stores. Um, so it took Joe a couple of years, but he managed to open all of them. And he opened another one, a seventh store, which was 100% his own store. Those stores were called Pronto Markets pronto meaning fast. Um, and it's a place you could just run in and get something that you need very quickly and run back out again. Um, so Joe start and ran those. Um, and by 1958, he they were open, they were doing well, and Joe had a good plan for them. So Joe went back to Rexall and said, hey guys, I, if you let me buy out your 51% of at market cost, um, I, I would like to be owner of 100% of, of Pronto Markets. And Pronto responded, um, you pay us 10% over market and they're yours. Well, now Joe really didn't have any money. He didn't have you know, two nickels to rub together at the time. Um, and so he went to his employees. Uh, he, he used very creative financing. He got, um, he got some loans for part of it, bank loans. Um, part of it he, he got from his employees where Joe had created tremendous uh, loyalty with his employees. So when Joe, Joe went back to his employees and said, hey guys, we have the ability to maybe own this company, um, all of these stores, would you guys like to buy in as my partners? And he got a lot of partners to step up and put up the money. And it was wonderful um, because uh, creative financing and loyalty, employee loyalty is huge. Um, he also got money from a company, a dairy called Ador Farms. Mm -hmm. um, Ador Farms was a dairy company. Uh, back then, the dairy companies, they had, uh, they would deliver 
they had milk trucks and the milk trucks would come to your home and deliver all the dairy products, your milk, eggs, cheeses, those kinds of things. And they would deliver them to your home once a week or however often you wanted them to deliver. And one of the major brands back then was called Ador Farms, hmm. um, which was run by a guy named Merritt Adamson Jr. And Merritt had been trying to get Joe's business for several years. He wanted he wanted the Pronto Market. Um, he wanted the Pronto Market business. He wanted Joe to carry Ador Farms on the shelves in Pronto Markets. So when Joe needed this money to buy out Rexall for the Pronto Markets, he went to Merritt and said, hey, um, I need some extra money. I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. If you give me a loan, uh, I will carry all of your dairy products so that we can grow together. As, as my company grows, I'll be paying back the loans and I'll be buying your milk products from you. And they shook on it. They shook hands and made a deal. And so Joe was able through these various um, uh, various ways to get bring the money in to buy out Rexall, which was really great. So now Joe has seven stores. He has seven pronto markets. They're healthy and they're uh, young and he has a plan. So over the next few years, he grows them and grows them more. Um, and in the 1960s, he now has 16 stores. This is the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. He's up to 16 stores and he's got a lot of his own blood, sweat and tears invested in the growth of the company. And so he, um, one day he and Merritt were sitting down having a cocktail and Merritt told Joe that uh, he had bad news for Joe, that the company in Texas that had all of those variety stores mm -hmm. found a way to change their policy to be able to open stores in California. Wow. Well, that brought a chill up Joe's spine because he knew that that company uh, had a giant, giant bank account and a giant marketing budget and that this company was going to come to California and roll over Joe like a truck. And Joe didn't know what to do. He knew with his little 16 stores that he would, there was no way he could stand up to those stores. Yeah. So he felt he had two choices. He could either try to stand up to those stores, but eventually die a slow, painful death, or he could close his business on Monday morning um, and call it a day. Yeah, and that would have been uh, an, uh, an easy solution. Also, because uh, just to remind the audience, the company that uh, you're talking about was Seven uh, Eleven, which at the time, yes, yeah, was was a giant, right? I mean, compared to the Pronto Markets, which was just a. Uh, uh, you know, a bunch of stores, a few stores that, uh, of course, uh, were successful and they had grown into also successful um, customer uh, client for for the the company owned by by Merit, which was the first, uh, you know, real partnership that uh, Trader Joe uh, actually uh, Joe Colomb had um, uh, in place. But what happened next? Because uh, okay, as you said, um, you know, we went from the fifties to the sixties. You know, there, there was this uh, idea of, uh, of uh, you know, Joe Columb to start a set of uh, uh, markets based on the idea of 7-Eleven, which was uh, in Texas and other states, but was not yet in California. Also, it's important to remember the context we are in uh, after war, uh, Second World uh, War period, where there were uh, still a lot of uh, regulations that uh, uh, limited the supply of some of the goods that uh, uh, many retails would be able to sell. So there were a lot of barriers to enter uh, this industry. And uh, this definitely helped initially, um, you know, Joe to, to get started. But what was the evolution? What happened next? And how did he eventually manage to succeed, even though he experienced uh, many near death and bankruptcies uh, the, 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 the company. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny. Joe is a very visual 
man, when you sit down, when you would sit down to have a conversation with Joe, you could see him, he would always look up and you can see that he was envisioning, you know, whatever topic you were talking about, you could see that he was watching it in his head, you know, every, he was a very visual human being. And so he would always see pictures and images in his head. Well, this particular weekend that when he just didn't know what to do and he was felt very threatened and should he close down or die a slow lingering death, he felt those were his two choices. He, he gathered his wife and children and they got in the car and drove up to a mountain in Southern California for the weekend and he just closed the door and just to think he just wanted to think he was scared to death he knew he was going to leave everything and he was going to lose his his loyal employers employees he was going to lose you know his vendors he was going to lose everything that he worked so hard for over the last you know 10 12 15 years and so he was very scared and as he sat there he started thinking about a ride that he took at Disneyland with his family. And it was a Pirates of the Caribbean ride. For anybody that's ever been to Disneyland, I'm sure you might've experienced that <laughs> ride. But that memory came back into his head and he was started to think about a movie that he had recently seen about these, um, these old ships, these old sailing ships from the 1700s that would travel around the world with their big, beautiful sails. And they would go from port to port buying goods and selling goods and trading, you know, food and, and goods everywhere that they went. And he looked down at the, the drink that he had in his hand. His wife had made him a Mai Tai. And back then, Mai Tais were very popular. They were this little tropical drink with an umbrella in it. And he remembered that these, uh, he started thinking that these drinks which were very popular and everybody was drinking them in the United States. But those were created by a bar called Trader Vicks. Hmm. But all of these images were sort of floating through the air in his head when it, it sort of, it hit him. It hit him like a, like a, like a shopping basket in a parking lot. It, it hit him hard. Um, he got this idea and he went running back down the mountain and gathered all of his troops together in the stores and said, guys, I know we talked about two options, he said, but I have a third option. So the two options we discussed on Friday were either to stay alive and fight it out and die a long, slow, bloody death, or to close down on, on Monday morning. He said, I came up with a third option. Here's what we're going to do. He said, we're going to change everything. We're just going to change all the rules. That's what we're going to do. We're going to change the playing field. And we're going to change our name to Trader Joe's all of our employees, we're going to act like those old trading ships and um, that, that go around the world and buy and sell foods and groceries and, and items from all the different countries in the world. We're going to dress like, uh, like Hawaiian shirts and we're going to adopt a tiki Polynesian theme in all of our stores. And he said, well, trade, we're going to change our name to Trader Joe's and we're completely go away from the variety store model and we're going to go into a Trader Joe uh, model and we're going to create our own model as we go. Mm. And that's what they did. They did it. So with the 17th store, uh, which was going to become the 17th Pronto market, that became the first Trader Joe's. And then one by one, he, he, converted the old 16 stores one by one the old pronto stores into trader joe's and that's how that part of the story happened yeah and uh, he managed eventually to buy out his uh, first uh, partner which uh, uh, as you recount in the book actually uh, inherited uh, such an incredible piece of land in california um, that uh, would, uh, uh, you know, eventually be uh, Malibu in uh, in uh, Los Angeles. So the the whole story it's uh, uh, it seems like uh, like a movie, but uh, uh, you know, Trader <laughs> Joe went through a few uh, phases uh, that uh, you know made the company evolve, and uh, this was not uh, 
I mean, the, the, the whole period for a little bit of context, we're in a time where there are not really uh, sort of private uh, uh, brands uh, in, uh, in the retail space. And we're in a time in which both uh, uh, radio and TV are actually uh, gaining traction. And therefore, they are becoming like a sort of mass media, which for the first time enables uh, companies to communicate at scale and you know, produce a single message for many people and uh, gives the ability to whoever can leverage this message to, uh, to build you know, a brand, which before was something that didn't exist. So what were uh, those uh, phases that uh, Trader Joe went through uh, and uh, how the company evolved throughout the years? Oh, okay. Um, Trader Joe's went through several phases, but as you said, radio and television in the 50s and 60s was really coming online strong. And most of the major brands, um, you know, owned a lot of the advertising space, which allowed them to grow to phenomenal, phenomenal brand sizes, mm -hmm. uh, just huge. Well, th that was, again, a huge obstacle for Joe because he didn't have that kind of budget. So he had to come up with a philosophy of how can he compete with these giant grocery brands and product brands? Uh, how could he compete against them with no advertising budget? How could he be the little guy and how can he attract people and, and gain trust to get people to come in his door rather than going to the large trusted brands on the corners, the large supermarkets that were popping up everywhere at the time? Mm -hmm. um, and that was a huge question. And what he realized very early on in the process was that he needed to come up with a strategy of differentiation. In other words, he thought people are not going to come into my store because I'm going to carry all the same products that the large supermarkets carry. Mm -hmm. People are going to come into my store because I'm different. But how can I take that concept and make it truly different? And he came up with what he called his pillars of differentiation. And so this is the underlying philosophy that happened behind the three phases that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So if, if you don't mind for one second, I'd like to go into that, those yeah. pillars of differentiation Absolutely. Um, that sort of underlie all the phases. Um, so the, the pillars of different, he says, okay, how can you differentiate your products from somebody else? If I have to carry milk, how can my milk be different? Or if I have to carry eggs or cheese or bread, how can I make my products different to make people come into my store rather than go to the supermarket on you know, the major brand supermarkets? So he came up with these pillars of differentiation. He decided that you can differentiate your products. Assuming you're carrying similar lines of product, he, you can differentiate based on price. That's the most obvious one, right? You can just lower your price. Well, that's all fine and good, but Joe didn't want to become known as sort of the cheap, the cheap, you know, store brand, mm -hmm. uh, the discount cheap store brand. He wanted to still be able to, he wanted customers, consumers to perceive a quality about him. So how could he lower his prices and still have quality? So his next, next area of differentiation um, is about packaging. So you can package, you can change the packaging. Um, and by changing packaging, it's not just about changing the labels, which he did, but mm -hmm. also by changing quantity. See, back then, most of the stores carried 50 pound bags of flour. Well, you know, a lot of people at this point were moving into apartments, you know, post-World War II, college graduates were, were moving into apartments. They weren't buying homes. So they didn't have room for things like 50 pound bag of potatoes and a 50 pound bag of flour and a 50 pound bag of rice. They, they needed to buy things in smaller quantities. So Joe got the idea of, of taking a lot of the staples that the grocery stores carried and creating small packages for them so that people would come back to his store often, but they were able to buy smaller, more manageable quantities. Another area is ingredients. So what if he was able to slightly change the ingredients of some of the products, you know, maybe make them a little bit more wholesome, a little bit more natural. He had an advantage in that back in the 70s, um, 60s and 70s, the big brands 
were touting science as being the reason why people should buy their products. And there were large companies like Monsanto and huge giant brands like Swanson frozen TV dinners, which were just horrible. <laughs> My mother would never buy them. But those were these were the big brands, right? The big Swanson frozen frozen food brands, the Del Monte canned vegetable brands with hormones and preservatives. Um, all of these big brands were scientifically created, and those in America at the time were considered the trusted brands. And Joe was thinking, no, what if I came up with, you know, a way to can corn without hormones and preservatives? And what if I came up with a way to flash freeze, you know, products so that they didn't have a lot of preservatives, and, you know, and, and would be, um, you know, just really disgusting foods in the freezer. <laughs> and so he, over the time he came up with these. Um, so again, his pillars of differentiation were pricing, packaging, ingredients, and of course, uniqueness. And that's where he would send his buyers around the world to find unique products that Americans had not seen yet. So those were Joe's pillars of differentiation, pricing, packaging, yeah. ingredients, uniqueness. Um, now, talking about the three phases, the growth phases that he went through, um, he first went through something that he called his whole, his good time Charlie phase, which was sort of the original phase of Trader Joe's. And originally coming out of Pronto, uh, he was sort of thinking in terms of, you know, he'd like this to be sort of where every man could go to the grocery store, where back then it, grocery stores were really for women so he wanted to carry things that would attract men into the store things like you know girly magazines or bullets for guns or you know cigarettes whatever um you know things that guys would buy in addition to all the groceries um and then the the uh phase in the united states came in the late 60s and early 70s we sort of call it the hippy dippy period where everybody sort of went back. They started to realize they didn't want to eat these preserved foods. They didn't want to have hormones and chemicals in their foods. They wanted, they felt it was important to go back to the earth. And so going from the first phase, which Joe called his good time, Charlie phase, that was the store that he wanted to attract men. It sort of evolved into the second phase, which he called his whole earth hairy phase. And this was Joe's hippy dippy phase. So Joe started growing squash and pumpkins in his backyard. Um, and he started creating relationships with farmers around California. Now, California yeah. is a very similar ecosystem to Italy. So California and Italy have, have fresh farmed um, environment uh, in common. And California was bursting with, with freshness and fresh fruits and vegetables and meat and produce and dairy products that Americans weren't used to eating. They were used to buying the convenient frozen preserved foods from the big major, quote, trusted brands. So Joe felt that no, 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 no. He wanted to create what he called his whole earth hairy phase, which would introduce the public to much more natural brands and, and more fresh farm to table kind of philosophy and products. Uh, at the time, it didn't go well. Most of America looked at this philosophy as sort of being the hippie sandal wearing, you know, store down on the corner, this Trader Joe's that never carried the big trusted brands. But Joe stuck to it. He was on the right track. Slowly over time, people started getting educated about what they were eating on the scientific side and uh, started wanting to feed their family more natural foods. And that really did help Joe grow his whole earth hairy phase. As, as he grew through the 70s, uh, Joe sort of, he got older and sort of outgrew his own whole earth hairy phase and grew more into his business phase. Now, this is the phase that Joe really started taking, taking a close look at the bottom line where every product on the shelf had to, had to earn its own profit. Each product on the shelf had to be profitable. He refused to carry products because the vendors were telling him 
that they were the big brands and they could dictate to him what to carry, like grocery stores did. If he said, hey, I only want one product, I'm going to carry only one product. I'm not going to carry 30 products or 40 products that aren't profitable, profitable to me. I want every square inch on my shelves to be profitable. And that's where he sharpened his pencil. And that's the phase of his store that he called Mac the Knife. It was a it was a, a very aggressive business approach to groceries. Now that he had defined his market, uh, defined his customer base, now his pencil was sharp. This was called Mac the Knife. Mm-hmm. And that was his that was his real sharp business face of Trader Joe's. Wow. And um, uh, this is so contemporary also because uh, a few like couple key points based on uh, what you said so far. Uh, first of all, of course, there was this evolution where Trader Joe's started to uh, invest a lot on uh, uh, creating a new category of retail, which was uh, completely opposite with what existed at the time, where you had those huge brands, which were completely, uh, let's say, artificial, and they leveraged uh, uh, primarily mass media extremely well, and they had like a huge budget. And they can reach a lot of uh, people. And then there was like uh, the uh, Trader Joe side uh, that where, uh, you know, uh, Joe said, okay, I want to create something which is based on quality, uh, where I'm going to be able to create my own also brands within my offering. And um, he actually started from uh, from a niche that eventually would end up becoming quite a huge market, which was uh, that of uh, the what uh, he called uh, over-educated and underpaid. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, uh, back going back again to the early days, um, we were coming out of, of World War II. Um, the United States had a a veterans plan where if you were a veteran, uh, a military veteran in the United States, um, one of your benefits would be that you were able to get a college education very, very inexpensively. And for the first time, the the education level in the United States, if you look back, if you look back to the 1930s during the Great Depression, um, the education, you know, the, the number of people that were getting college degrees was very low. It was under 10%. Um, and because of this, uh, what was called the GI Bill, um, the veterans were able and their families were able to get a much higher education um, and get college degrees. What, what this meant was now in the 60s, you now had, you know, 70%, 80% of Americans now getting, you know, with the ability to get college degrees, which was, it changed everything. Mm -hmm. And it created a whole new brand of consumers um, as a direct result. Um, And these consumers, because they were educated, they were getting, um, they were getting better jobs. Um, They were uh, getting better pay. They were traveling now, you know, it created a first a first line of travelers uh, during this mo- during this period. Uh, Boeing, the airplane uh, manufacturer, Boeing uh, was releasing its 747, and with that, they were severely dropping the price of international travel. Well, guess who was the first crowd to be able to step aboard the 747s to travel the world? It was these educated people, mm-hmm. and um, Joe sort of had a term for these people. Um, he called them the uh, overeducated and underpaid because all these people were getting an education, but the United States wasn't set up yet to accept. They didn't have a lot of high paying jobs for educated people yet. So you had all these people that could be orchestra conductors or college professors or teachers or you know, executives, but they weren't getting paid a lot of money. But they had great taste. They were experimenters. They wanted to know more. They read about, uh, about what people were eating and doing and how they were living in other parts of the world. They didn't want, they didn't want these preservatives that, that Americans were eating and, and all of this, what well, you know, today we call junk food. They wanted better foods. They wanted, they had a better appetite. Joe saw this group as a as a growing group that he identified as his overeducated and underpaid. And these were the people that Joe decided he wanted to create Trader Joe's for. He didn't care much about, 
you know, families that had kids. He didn't care much about pets. He didn't care much about anything. He what he cared about is he wanted this educated group of people to be the ones that walked into his store because they were dissatisfied with what they were getting in the major grocery brand stores on the corner. And that was his market. And what a great choice, because what he was identifying was what we now call the middle class. Well, back then, you know, there was there was very little middle class. And as as you know, it was that burgeoning middle class that grew into a, a giant that was America in the 20th century. So he was right on when he saw that. Evolution of Trader Joe's was quite interesting because uh, he eventually managed to actually uh, target a market that initially was uh, was a niche, which was the market of the overeducated and the underpaid, which as you explained, this would become the, the, the US middle class. But, uh, you know, going forward, um, what happened next? I think there is an interesting aspect, actually, which is an evergreen aspect of uh, that I found in the book also as a digital entrepreneur. There is a, a one thing that Trader Joe's used over the years to grow uh, its own brand, uh, which was the the um, the, fl- the the fearless uh, flyer, uh, which which was sort of a publication that or a newsletter, if you wish, that uh, Trader Joe's was sending out to uh, to uh, its audience. Uh, what were some of the things and the main things that made uh, you know Trader Joe's unique and uh, differentiated on the on the market? Oh gosh, those are some great stories. Um, I'll tell you some of my favorites. Uh, how to differentiate? And these are great examples when you have to carry something that somebody else is carrying. How to make it different? So eggs. We're going to take eggs because eggs is one of those items that are impossible to differentiate because an egg is an egg, right? But Joe, being Joe, see, Joe saw the world differently. <laughs> hmm. he, he had to um, still find a way to make an egg different. And of course, he did consider square eggs, but he couldn't get the chickens to cooperate. Um, <laughs> hi there. Um, and so uh, he did consider square eggs. But what he did is he realized that at the time, eggs were regulated by the government, um, by the dairy consortiums. And so being regulated meant that all stores had to sell eggs of a certain size. They had to be packaged in cartons a certain way, and they were priced at a certain price. And that's what regulation is. Well, Joe is thinking, how can I get out of that? Because my customers need me to carry eggs. So he found a farmer that had different eggs um, of all things, not square eggs, but eggs that were... um, a different size of eggs. And because they were a different size, they were not regulated. They didn't have to be regulated. And they were not, there was not enough volume of these eggs to supply the entire grocery industry, but there was certainly plenty enough to provide for Trader Joe's. Well, guess what? That allowed Joe to make, to uh, uh, carry eggs differently. And the eggs, what was different is they were not the the what's called medium-sized eggs that the rest of the grocery industry was carrying. These were extra large eggs. And Joe was able to negotiate such a price that he could sell extra large eggs for the same price that the rest of the grocery industry was selling regular-sized eggs, um, medium-sized eggs. And that was enough to get moms to step foot in his door. But again, that was Joe thinking a little bit differently. Um, You know, another area was cheese. Hmm. His customers wanted cheese. Everybody wants cheese. Uh, But again, the dairy industry had regulated cheese. So you would carry a cheddar cheese and maybe a jack cheese, a Swiss cheese. Um, But how do you make those different when the dairy industry is telling you what cheeses you can carry, how to package them, how to price them, where to get them from, etc.? So again, Joe had to think of this differently. So he sent his buyer, Mr. Leroy Watson, to Europe to go find a cheese. And Leroy found Brie um, in France and brought it back to the United States. And what they did is they negotiated Brie at such a wonderful price. And it came by the train loads out to California. And Joe was able to sell Brie at the same price that the grocery stores were selling 
well, it wasn't even cheese. It was called Velveeta, and it was a processed cheese food. They couldn't wow. actually call it cheese. And it was, and Joe was able, and and Brie, I mean, today Brie is is such a loved brand, and Trader Joe's became the biggest seller of Brie cheese. Um, you know, another one of those stories again in the cheese category is um, Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. Again. He was told how to carry it, how to package it, whatever, and he didn't want to have anything to do with that. So he sends Mr. Watson back to a Swiss cheese factory. And as the as the guy was cooking in this big vat of cheese, the heat is coming up from the middle of the bottom of the vat. So the middle cheese in the vat was bubbling, but around the edge, it wasn't bubbling. And the man would take this bubbly cheese and he would pour it into a cold mold that would set the cheese quickly while the bubbles were still in the cheese. And that's why Swiss cheese has holes in it, right? Wow. But Leroy says, gee, what about the cheese that's around the edge? What do you do with that? And he says, well, we call it, you know, grade B cheese and we sell it to schools and, you know, anybody else that wants it. And Leroy said, is there anything wrong with the cheese? And the man said, no, it's perfectly good cheese. It just doesn't have air bubbles in it. And Americans want bubbles in their Swiss cheese. So Leroy said, would you mind if we bought it? And so they sent this cheese back by the train loads to California. And Trader Joe's packaged it in small packages. And they renamed it. They called it Trader Joe's Closed Eyes Baby Swiss. And it yes. sold like crazy. Um, but yes. these are ways that Joe could carry the same products mm -hmm. as everybody else, but still be different. Yeah. And if your business is a product-driven business or a service-driven business, it doesn't matter. If you can think of ways to make each of your individual products or services slightly different than your competition, you will very quickly, if you can stick to that, that philosophy all by itself is what created Trader Joe's because of that differentiation. And then, of course, he private labeled. Yeah. He private labeled because, as Joe used to say, you could hide a myriad of secrets behind a private label. His competitors couldn't tell what the ingredients were, you know, what the recipe was, he, it, or his competitors couldn't tell where he bought the product from, who the vendors were. Um, so therefore, they couldn't tell him what price to put on his products. So he would have products that were equivalent, if not healthier, than the grocery stores so selling for less expensive and a much better variety. So he, he really liked the idea of private labeling because you can hide all of your company secrets behind that label. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the incredible aspect that he managed to actually build a different kind of business, and the way it was done at the time it was you know completely different, and there was a way to differentiate which which was much easier, which was about distribution and lowering the price. But this is not what uh, Trader Joe's did; it did quite quite the opposite. So they found ways to bring high quality products on the U.S. market and uh, make them uh, very, very affordable. So there was very, uh, you know, uh, perspective that was not uh, easy to build over the years, but, uh, you know, Trader Joe's managed to do it. So uh, those are some of the, the things that, uh, and the stories that you told us that are uh, very, very interesting. And uh, there was also another aspect of uh, uh, Trader Joe's, which was like intensive buying, uh, coupled with uh, what he calls uh, uh, virtual distribution. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, a little bit more about that? And uh, you know, then uh, we get to the end of the story. Yes, intensive buying was a philosophy that Joe created um, and it housed several aspects. Um, the first one is what he called honor thy vendor. And by that, instead of treating vendors badly, uh, many stores will, really do treat their vendors badly and and they dictate everything to the poor vendor who's trying to figure out how to get products um, and how to pay their own bills and pay their own employees. Joe felt the opposite. He felt that that taking good care of your vendors, visiting them often was really a big deal. Visiting their plants, understanding their products really well. Um, 
he felt that his buyers in-house should be extremely well-paid, that his buyers shouldn't be there shopping on a computer for their products. They should be out in the field, tasting the product, discovering the products, traveling, finding, exploring, trying things new ways. It was very important to Joe that his buyers were out in the field and he paid them well to travel around the world to find new products, new foods, and build new relationships with new vendors and build small companies. Uh, Joe never liked doing business with large vendors and large companies. Mm -hmm. He felt that they were cold and impersonal. And if he couldn't look you in the eye and shake your hand, he wasn't interested in doing business with you. Uh, Joe loved finding small businesses, entrepreneurs, farmers that he could build new relationships with, but he cherished watching them grow because he felt they allowed him to experiment with his business and find new avenues of differentiation. And his gratitude was expressed by helping them grow. So he felt that that level of intensive buying. Um, also, intensive intervention. By intervention, he wanted his chefs and his buyers. Let's say the product was, oh, I don't know, cereal. I come up with some product. Um, he wanted to know every ingredient that was in it. He wanted his chefs to make sure that every product was clean. Every product was, you know, pure, clean, organic, uh, no preservatives, no processing, but be able to shift things according to maybe how Californians like things or because everybody around the world has a different palate. Joe realized this. He wanted to be able to make sure that they can shift their ingredients just a little bit. So he called that, you know, intensive participation um, in the manufacturing of the products. Mm -hmm. And this created really great relationships because he was also, you know, providing new products for a lot of his vendors to sell to other, other stores and markets as well. Um, in terms of this virtual distribution, the classic way that products came from manufacturers back then is the manufacturers would ship product via truck or train to mm -hmm. individual stores, um, which is not, he, Joe did not find that to be a very, um, very practical way of, uh, of distributing product because there was a lot of stores going in a lot, a lot of trucks going into a lot of different directions. He also didn't want his store personnel to have to work with the vendors all day long. He wanted his store personnel to be dealing with the customers all day long, not the vendors. So Joe changed things out, which made things a lot easier for the vendors. And it gave Joe a lot of control over product distribution. And that was to create centralized distribution where he had one warehouse where all of the goods came into one central warehouse. And then Joe's own trucks, his own truckers would then go out on established routes to each of the stores, bringing the trucks. Mm -hmm. And this freed up his store personnel. But that also meant that the truck drivers could also, they were also, because they were part of Trader Joe's, they could go into the stores. They knew where to put the, they knew exactly where to put the pallets, where to put the cartons in the crates that would make it easy for the store personnel to grab them and load them onto the shelves. So that was sort of a very fluid very practical way to handle things within the store. And mm -hmm. it freed up the store personnel to work with directly with the customers. Um, yeah. And yeah, that was kind of a, a really big deal to Joe. Really yeah, and it's, uh, it's impressive because uh, still today, I mean, uh, in uh, one of the, uh, you know, uh, given for granted uh, principles of business is that over time, as you, uh, uh, go through the process of vertical integration. You sort of create a, a monopoly in the market. And this is true also in technology or digital business. And what happens is that you squeeze out your suppliers. And this was not how Joe conducted business. And this is, uh, you know, such an, you know, this is impressive because uh, it's so contemporary. Uh, and, you know, he was not looking um, to, to actually build a sort of monopoly. He just wanted to build something extremely valuable for, uh, for people, but he was also balancing out uh, the value that he was creating for employees on the one side and for suppliers on the other side, which is something that today in a, in a customer obsessed, uh, you know, digital business world is not, uh, uh, is not very, very common because as you scale, 
you know, uh, it uh, tends, you, you tend to focus too much on customers, but then you sort of squeeze out everyone else. So it's very important to highlight that uh, Joe was, uh, uh, you know, against uh, management, uh, at least uh, for the sake of management. I mean, uh, it was uh, pro-management if it could help to actually improve the product, but otherwise, he was not a fan of uh, uh, having too many layers of management between him and the main people that uh, handled the, the stores. And also, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, um, he didn't appreciate like a vert vertical integration also for the sake of it, because as you explained, he had this concept of uh, uh, visual distribution. That was uh, one of the key elements of, uh, of uh, Trader Joe. So uh, to get to the end of the story and Thanks for taking the time. You, you uh, were very, very kind. Um, he eventually sold the company. Uh, you know, can you give us a little bit of context to what happened? Uh, and I guess probably a little bit uh, he regretted it at the end. Yes. Joe saw a couple things coming at the time. He saw a, uh, and he was very good. He was very forward thinking. It's almost like he could see the future at least for a couple of years. So he was always on trend and, and on mark. Um, but one of the things he saw was an inflation coming. Um, and it was something that he felt was gonna be almost catastrophic financially in size. And he felt he needed help that he couldn't do it alone, that he would not be able to handle it alone. And that he had had 20, had Trader Joe's for 20 years. And he had had Pronto Markets for 10 years beyond that. He was getting kind of tired. Um, and he felt like it was kind of time maybe he should move on a little bit and slow down and spend more time with his family. So he found uh, Aldi, Aldi Markets, and um, he sold to the all. He didn't sell to Aldi. He sold to the Albrecht family, mm -hmm. um, which owned Aldi Markets. But he sold to the Albrecht family, um, and uh, Joe ended up staying with Trader Joe's 10 years after the Albrechts purchased Trader Joe's. And he stayed on for another 10 years as president and general manager of the company and saw it through many more you know, changes in evolution all the way through the 80s um, before he actually finally retired from Trader Joe's. And in the end, as he was, he didn't write these memoirs until the 2000s, um, his journal. And as he looked back, he asked, you know, he asked himself, you know, do I, he said, people ask him all the time, does he ever regret, regret selling the store? And he says, yes, looking back, he did regret it very much. Uh, but he didn't know how to see past that big financial hill that he saw in front of him uh, at the time. So, wow, he ended up on the board of directors for many large uh, American national uh, retailers and influenced the way they buy, the way they sell, the way they pay their employees, the way they handle distribution. Um, and a lot of these companies to this day, still, when you walk through the stores, it reflects, you can see Joe's touches in their stores. Really neat. Nice. Yeah, and uh, I was uh, looking at an article from last year just to see at uh, which stage is, uh, is Trader Joe's. And of course, it's, uh, it's very interesting that uh, in 2020, was probably the company uh, passed uh, uh, 16.5 billion in uh, in revenue in 2020, yes. which is yes. uh, an incredible number. The scale of the yeah. company is incredible, and is part of the Aldi Group, as uh, we said, which in Europe is a, is a giant that probably makes more than 100 billion per year or something like sure. that. But uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, such a, a great story. Thanks again for making sure that uh, the book uh, came to life. Uh, and this is uh, inspiring and uh, so contemporary. So thanks for taking the time, Patty. Oh, Gennaro, it's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for, for, for inviting me. This has been Absolutely. fun. Thank you. Thank you. Before we end up this episode, let me give you a few important remarks about the Trader Joe story. 
The Trader Joe's story is uh, so interesting because as we saw, uh, this evolved on top of a few important trends that developed on the 50s and the 60s. Yet, instead of following the convention and actually instead of following the, the major trends that were developing at the time, actually Joe Colomb uh, understood that in order for him to differentiate the business, he wasn't going to do it through pricing, but instead he was going to do it through product and pricing. So he actually brought innovation in the space by leveraging both quality of product and pricing. And so he had to envision throughout the years a set of, uh, you know, a creative ways to actually bring quality products in the US and how to leverage also various strategies like private labeling, uh, distribution and what he actually called uh, intensive buying to uh, make sure that he could bring some of those products for um, you know an inexpensive price in the US market that was, that was the whole logic of uh, Trader Joe let's remember that um, uh, Joe Columb had actually identified a niche which was that of the over-educated and underpaid. There was really a niche throughout the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, but then, uh, as we saw throughout this episode, uh, it became the middle class in the US, a huge, huge market. So it's interesting to notice also how the bet that uh, Joe Columb has done uh, in the initial year of creating, years of creating Trader Joe actually paid off big time. And Trader Joe's uh, actually turned out to be one of the most successful retail stores and chains in the US. There were a few things and counterintuitive things that he did. Some of them, of course, were the fact that uh, he didn't like franchising at all. And throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s, actually, franchising had become pretty, pretty strong. On the other side, he also uh, managed to, to create a brand for, for uh, Trader Joe without uh, just uh, leveraging on uh, distribution alone. Instead, he did the opposite. He uh, actually leveraged on making sure that uh, uh, consumers could know more about the product and yet offer a quality product. So opposite to what happened throughout those years where you had uh, major brands who understood how to actually leverage uh, branding through mass media let's remember that those were the years where both the radio and the tv became primary uh, medium of um, uh, actually communication and therefore it was possible for companies to build huge brands and actually also sell low quality products at scale. This was not the case for Trader Joe who learned how to master uh, the uh, marketing through uh, also radio and TV, but the way they did it was quite different. Um, Trader Joe over the years also broadcasted the program through the radio was pretty successful, but it was more an informational product, meaning that they were actually explaining and doing storytelling uh, behind the products that they were selling uh, in their stores and therefore creating a more engaged customer base. Another key thing that actually uh, Trader Joe has done throughout the years was to leverage on what we would call today content marketing. So uh, Trader Joe had built a newsletter called Fearless Flyer, who would become like a major propeller for the business over the years. And another key point, which we didn't touch throughout the conversation, but that uh, Patty made sure to uh, clarify to me was the fact that um, uh, Trader Joe overpaid people. So uh, a strategy of Trader Joe was that to overpaying employees. And this was because actually uh, Joe Columbe understood that uh, in, if you wanted to uh, actually uh, make sure that you didn't have a high turnover and that you could retain as long as possible uh, competent people in the company, you needed to actually incentivize them, you know, also behind what uh, the market proposed. And remember, again, we are in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So this uh, lesson is quite counterintuitive because, of course, uh, it could have followed a completely different approach. And uh, as the story unfolds, uh, it's uh, quite uh, interesting to see also how uh, Joe Columb was, you know, it is like the management, 
he didn't want to create too many layers between him and uh, the main managers he wanted actually uh, people and uh, people within the company to experience the product in the first place travel the world also to understand and build the relationships with the suppliers and so in when Treasure was growing up instead of vertically integrating by actually trying to squeeze out better prices for from suppliers they actually uh, did it in a sustainable way by building relationships with suppliers by time to time by understanding what were the opportunities in the marketplace that actually helped the company to uh, import in the US quality products at a cheaper price. So they were very creative in this approach. Another key point uh, that, you know, uh, from this conversation uh, came up was the fact that um, even people that, uh, you know, were within the company, again, they were supposed to experience the product as much as possible. And Joe Columb didn't have much respect for administration for its own sake, and therefore he made sure that people were incentivized to have a, you know, a feel of, uh, of the products of, uh, that Trader Joe was selling instead of just working in the office and uh, being uh, you know, administrative people. Indeed, as uh, it is also highlighted in the book, many of the people that dealt with the product were, um, you know, had the chance to earn way, way more than people that were just in the office. And this sort of culture actually shaped Trader Joe and uh, over the end of the 70s, eventually Trader Joe would be sold to the family who controlled Aldi. And still, as of these days, Trader Joe is uh, uh, worth billions and it's one of the most valuable brands that uh, the Aldi family has in, uh, its, uh, as part of its uh, retail empire. So again, this story can teach us many, many things on how to run a business, how to do things in a counterintuitive way by using creativity and actually not following what the, the big players are doing and still creating one of the most valuable brands that we have today. Mm -hmm.